Now, if you'll join me in your Bibles or on the back of your bulletin, uh, this morning's passage is Mark 3, 6 through 19. Mark 3, 6 through 19. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. And Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed them from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority and cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, the son of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Please pray with me. Jesus, we love you this morning, and we thank you for this time that we get to be in your word, to worship you and remember your goodness and your faithfulness and celebrate that. I pray that during this time, we'd be focused on you, that we'd be able to not think about the world, not think about ourselves and our lives, but to focus on the work that you're doing in your kingdom and the role that we can play in that, how you've invited us to be a part of part of your kingdom. Jesus, we love you, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you, Joel. Sometimes when we read a passage of scripture together, it's quite clear what the topic of the sermon is about, and other times it's not quite as clear. This morning I want to talk to you about the pressures of life that Jesus Christ faced during his time here on earth. And it's relevant because we face tremendous pressure today. There are pressures at work, there are pressures at home, there are relationship pressures, there are loneliness pressures, there are all sorts of different pressures that we face in life that make life extremely challenging and extremely difficult. I did some reading this week and I came across one family, that the pressures of life, the pressures of finances, of raising children, of marriage, of work, was too much. And their solution was to buy a sailboat and spend three years sailing around the world to create a different path for their family. I read another article this week about a young man who was facing tremendous pressure a young man from Orange County, from Newport Beach, who, based on all outward appearances, looked like he had just the perfect life, the the charmed life, the kind of life that other people admired and looked after. I believe we have a picture of him. His name was Patty. 
And this is a 16-year-old boy from Newport Beach, California that um, ended up taking his life uh, a couple months ago because the pressures of life were too much. Let me read just a little bit. This is from uh, the Orange County Register, uh, a little bit about his life. And I'll just read parts of this article. Uh, in a very nice part of California, in a very nice home, a very nice family sits down, a very nice family sits down for dinner. Dad asks his 18-year-old son about the baseball game he just pitched. The team lost, but the family knows there are bigger issues in life. The Corona Del Mar High School senior feels fine about his performance. But no matter how positive or relaxed the conversation, an unshakable gloom filled humankind's deepest questions, filled with humankind's deepest questions, hangs in the air. The dinner is courtesy of caring neighbors who want to help, but someone is missing from the table who should be there, but he will never return. Less than two months ago, January 27th, 16-year-old Patrick, Patty to his family, took his life in center field in the nearby park. So much pressure is put on kids to do good, and a lot of kids make mistakes, Patrick wrote. One slip-up makes a kid feel like the smallest person in the world. He wrote a letter before he took his life. You're looked at as a loser if you don't go to college, if you don't get a certain GPA or a test score. There is never a moment to break. Every generation faces pressure, but this generation has never, has, is a new generation to face continual pressure. The article goes on and says this. This is actually um, from a, a physician who wrote about Patrick's letters. The release of Patrick's letters are spurring a national conversation on whether we expect too much from our children, especially affluent and highly educated communities. Patrick wrote this. People don't understand how to be selfless. It's all about how great I am. It's never about the other kid. The kid who maybe does not play a sport, maybe he doesn't have a 4.0 GPA, but displays great character. Patrick had good grades. He, was, he had A's and B's. He had curly blonde hair and a smile that would light up hearts. A naturally gifted athlete, people naturally fell in love with him. Patrick said this in his letters. Have compassion. Develop empathy. His dad, during the, his eulogy, echoed what his son said. Look in the mirror. Look at your heart. Stop keeping score. Stop racing each other. Stop making it about yourself. Slow down and have a conversation. The article describes in, in detail... Um, that the pressures of life are real and Jesus faced pressures of life in the same way that we do. When we come to church, sometimes we overemphasize the deity of Christ, that Jesus Christ is God, but we have to understand, if we're going to understand the Bible correctly, that Jesus was fully human, that he experienced the same pressures that we have faced. And this morning I want to show you, I hope you have your Bible, and if not, you have your bulletin, I want to show you um, 
from God's word that Jesus understands the pressures that we all face. Occasionally I'm asked, Brian, how do you um, pick, pick sermon topics and how do you know what to say or what do you talk about? And, and um, part of the answer is, is talking to you all. Is that I, I meet with people during the week, I talk with people, and I will say that one of the things that's been a reoccurring theme even uh, since the beginning of this year is that, Brian, I face tremendous pressure in my life. All sorts of pressure. How to raise my children, how to be a good husband, how to be a good wife, how to do life, how to be a good friend, how to make life work. And when we look at God's word, we can understand that Jesus is here as an example. And so I want to show you, beginning in Mark chapter 3, um, some examples of the pressures that Jesus faced. So let me just let's begin here. Mark chapter 3, verse 6 says this, The Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him. So number one, we see that Jesus was despised by religious people. The powerful religious elite people hated him. They despised him. Now think about this just for a minute. If you know somebody in your neighborhood that just does not like you, that despises you, that shuns you, that looks down upon you. What does that do to your soul? What does that do to you in, in your emotions and how you feel about yourself when you know that people do not like you? Jesus experienced that by powerful people, by morally self-righteous people, by people who would plot his death. It, go, it continues. It says this, that the Herodians were against him as well. The Herodians were a political group, a politically powerful group. And so you've got these two groups that were normally enemies, religious leaders and these political leaders, and they would normally despise each other. But as we've heard, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so these two groups join together in their hatred of Christ. Just like we've experienced in life, certain groups of people in the neighborhood or at work, there's conflicts in life. And when you are the center of this conflict, it does things to you. It does things to your soul. And so what Jesus does is he, verse 7 says this, that Jesus withdrew. And so Jesus is going to um, flee and, and escape because these pressures of his life are real. And they want to hurt Jesus. They want to cause harm to him. So Jesus leaves to escape the pressure. The problem is, is that the pressures continue. We've got religious pressure, political pressure, and now we have crowd pressure. We've got people, verse 7 says this, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. And then Mark lists all these geographical areas and the point is this, that Jesus is surrounded by this crowd of people. People from all over are seeking Jesus, that they want him, that they want to be a part of him. And so the question is, well, why, why is Jesus so popular at this time? Why do people pursuing him? Why are people pressuring him? The huge crowds are demanding the attention of Christ. They want him. And verse 9 gives us some insight into what was their motive. 
Verse 9 says this. So he told his disciples to have a boat ready. So he's on the edge of a lake, and he says to his disciples, modern day translation, keep the car running. I need, to, I need to be ready to escape. So the disciples are out there in the boat, ready to go. Maybe uh, James and John, the sons of thunder, are there holding oars, ready to, to beat the crowd back. But they want, <clears throat> they want something from Christ. And they were so desperate, Mark says this, he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because the crowd, lest they crush him, so the crowd is so desperate, they are literally physically pushing in on him. And his life is at risk. His physical well-being is at risk. The closest thing that I can imagine is years ago in my early 20s, I had the, the foolish decision to play rugby. And a few times was um, a part of the scrum. And I learned quickly that I did not like that because there was lots of really large bodies, much larger than me, elbowing me and kicking me and doing things. This is what's happening. Jesus is in the middle of the scrum. And he's being pushed and pressured. And he's feeling the pressure in the same way that you feel pressures from people. Jesus is feeling the pressures of life. And what do they want? Verse 9 continues. Verse 10. For he had healed many. So the crowds are after Jesus for healing. So they want something from him. And what Jesus is saying here is this, is that his ministry is primarily about preaching the gospel, about announcing his kingdom, that there is good news, that there is hope and healing for people in life who feel pressured in life. But the crowd doesn't want that. They want something from Christ. They want healings. And so Jesus is feeling the pressure of being used. Have you ever felt that way? That people just want things from you? They don't care really about who you are. They care about what you offer them. And that is what Jesus is experiencing. The same thing happens later in the life of Christ in John chapter 6 when he feeds the 5,000. He feeds them and then he's like, I'm out of here. I've got to make a run for my life. And the people pursue him and the people, the crowds want Jesus for their own agenda. And so Jesus understands the pressures of life. If that's not enough, the pressures continue. Verse 10 says, For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him. Now, I know there are a few people in our church that work in the medical field, and I visited uh, somebody in the hospital not too long ago, and I, I was talking uh, with somebody about that, and I was reminded of the environment of a hospital, people who are sick, people who have injuries, and people who have physical ailments, it's not always a nice place. It's not a pleasant place. It's, it's a tough place. Think first century Israel. People with sores and wounds. Right? I'll spare the details, but it's not the kind of thing that's all that uh, appealing when somebody has gaping wounds and they're trying to press in on you and get as close to you as you can, Jesus is facing tremendous pressures. And they continue. Verse 11 says this, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and immediately cried out, You are the Son of God. And now the demonic people are putting pressure on Jesus. You've got the religious people. You've got political people. You've got the crowds who just want to use Christ. 
And so whatever pressure you are facing in your life right now, Jesus has felt that. He's experienced that. He understands that. Something interesting is happening here with the demonized person. The demonized person, uh, in his attempt to manipulate Jesus, calls him out by name and says, you are the Son of God. And so even the demonized person is trying to control Jesus, to put pressure upon Jesus. Scholars and commentaries on the Gospel of Mark note this about what the demonized person says. He calls him specifically by name in order to attempt to gain control over Christ, to put pressure upon Christ. In, Old Te- or in New Testament times, first century times, calling somebody by name was a way of gaining power and gaining influence over them. The same thing is true if you are... Uh, if you've ever been, if you've ever had a substitute teacher in school, and the substitute teacher did not know your name, you could get away with all kinds of things, right? I uh, years and years ago I worked as a substitute teacher, and when you've got a group of students who love this moment, and you're like, hey you, hey hey you you you, they have they they know you're talking to that person, but since you're not using their name, they're playing games out. He's talking to the person behind me. When you know somebody's name, it gives you power. And so the demonized person is attempting to gain control by calling out Jesus' name. The pressure of life is real. The pressures that you face in life are real. And the solutions that we turn to are often self-destructive. What are the solutions we turn to today? We turn to alcohol to cope. We turn to isolation. We withdraw. When a man, now I'm speaking in generalities, but often when a man feels the pressures of life, what does a man do? He retreats and grabs a beer. That's what we do. When we feel overwhelmed, when we feel like we can't handle life, we withdraw. And Jesus offers us an alternative. And that begins in verse 13. I'll spend a few minutes. I've got four observations on how we can help understand life, the pressures of life, and how we deal with life. So number one is this. Jesus wants you to get away for spiritual renewal. Jesus wants you to deal with life. Jesus wants you to get away for spiritual renewal. Now, the solution here is one of the most awkward things maybe today in our culture. The things that we think are, that is weird. Um, it's completely uninteresting. In fact, we would probably make a list of many, many things we would do instead of what Jesus offers. And what Jesus offers is silence of stop. Stop being so busy. Stop the continual motion of life. Stop making your schedule so full. Stop the busyness. The continual endless cycle of busyness. And if you are a parent and the cycle of your life is continual busyness and the pressures are building up on you, where do you think 
the pressure is often released at our children. And we put pressure upon our children because we can't handle the pressures of life. Or we take the pressure out on people in our lives, our husbands or our wives or our friends. Here's what Jesus says. Just a short phrase, verse 13. And he went up on the mountain. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, needed to retreat, needed to get away to handle the pressures of life, if he needed to hit pause, if he needed to hit stop, how much more do we? We are fooling ourselves. We are deceiving ourselves if we think that we can just handle the continual pressures of life. I read an article this morning, uh, this week from Business Insider magazine. It said this, this, that the fear of silence is one of the fastest growing fears. The fear of silence. And I saw this as a classroom teacher for many, many years. Here's what would happen towards the end of my career. I'd ask a question. Actually ask the kids to think for a moment before they spoke. And then inevitably, in very normal eighth grade behavior, a girl or a boy in the midst of the silence would say, awkward, right? Because we can't have silence. Silence makes us uncomfortable. It's awkward. And so we thrive towards headphones, continual music, nonstop. Well, what is the purpose of silence? It's not silence for silence sake. It's silence so that God can speak to you, so that you can learn more about who God is, so you can learn about the life of Christ, that, that Christ can speak into your life, that you can renew your life with the grace of God. This idea of, of getting away is a part of Jesus' life all throughout the Gospels. I can give you, and I won't this morning, but I can give you example after example after example where Jesus would go up into the mountains, Jesus would go to the sea, Jesus would look for ways to find silence. What does that mean if you have a family and lots of kids, or you work a lot, you have a busy schedule? That just means this. You have to find a priority to find silence. If it's in the bathroom, fine. If it's in your car, if it's a walk on the beach, wherever it is, you have to find time in your life to hear from God, to see the value of silence, to get away. And I know this, that as I'm standing up here saying this to you, many of you say, yeah, that sounds nice, that's good. And as soon as Monday morning hits at 5.30 or whenever you wake up, that the day is off to the races. And the pressures build, and the pressures build, and you go home and you bark at your spouse you bark at somebody at work, you bark at your kids, and you end the day with a few beers or a drink, and you do it all over again. And Jesus is saying, I understand the pressures, but there's a better way to live. Jesus continues. Number two is this. Jesus wants you to do life with Him. Jesus wants you to do all of life with Him. This is what He says to the disciples. Verse 14, it says this. Um, and He appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. Jesus is saying this, do all of your life with me. All of the struggles, all of the pressures that you face, share them with me. Let me know about them. 
I want to be a part of your life. When Jesus calls these men to discipleship, to be apostles, it was not a class on Monday morning from 11 to noon. It was all of life. Every part of your life, Jesus wants to be a part of it, that you do life with him. There's a really interesting story in Luke chapter 15. It's of the prodigal son. We've, you've maybe read that story. There's three words that understand the love that God has for you. And in that story of the prodigal son, it says this, that when the son came home, the father approached him, and these three words the Bible says, that he kissed him, that the father kissed his son on the cheek to express the affection and the love and the devotion that the father has for his son. And it's a picture, it's a, it's a cultural picture of affection, of understanding the love that God has for you. And Jesus is saying this, do all of life with me because there's no one else that loves you more than I love you. That's why the Apostle Paul says this in Romans 5, he says this, that we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts. So it's a word picture that the love of God is poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit to know that Jesus Christ wants you to do all of life with him. Number three, Jesus wants you to do life together. Jesus wants you to do life together. Last night, Karen and I were uh, given tickets the last minute, a couple, couple days ago, I guess, to uh, the NCAA basketball game at Staples. University of Michigan was playing against Florida State. And one of the things that I noticed about Michigan, I'm always just enjoy watching people, and Michigan, if you go to the University of Michigan, you can meet somebody from any part of the country, probably the world, and if you've got the big M on you, you're like friends, no matter what. I, have, I don't know if I've ever seen in this large of a play, Staples Center, where it was probably 90% Michigan fans and 10% Florida State fans, the Michigan fans, 20,000 people, were like best friends. And they love each other. And the... <laughs> that's one thing that was very confusing to me. Their uniforms are yellow. <laughs> blue, blue. blue. I, I, I had like people all around my head. Like my ears are still vibrating. Go blue. And I'm like, but it's their accent color. That's what I was... Anyways... <laughs> Jesus appointed 12, and we're not going to name the 12 this morning, but this is a very clear picture of going back to Exodus like we have been for several days, several weeks. This is a picture of God creating a new community. This is a picture of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus is saying this, that this number pictures what my new community is to be like. It's not a nice community, it's a new community. People who are finding their life, their identity in Christ. Jesus offers a path to deal with the pressures of life. Number one, learn to enjoy silence. Number two, do all of life with Christ. He loves you more than you know. Number three, do life together. 
Stop, keep, stop keeping people at a distance. Open up about the challenges. Open up about the great things you're doing in life. Open up about the things that make you sad. One of the things we don't talk about very much, and something I've been talking with people over the last couple months, is the idea of loneliness in marriage. One of the things you think about when you're single is that when you get married, that that will put an end to the loneliness ache in your heart. And I'm here to tell you that loneliness exists in single people, it exists in married people, it exists in teenagers, it exists in old people. And our church is to be a place where we do life together, that we are to be open and honest about the fears we have, about the things that cause us anxiety. We are to be a true community. The next thing, and the last thing that Jesus wants is this, that he wants you to do life for others. He wants you to do life for others. And Jesus says this, and he appointed 12 and he named them apostles. Apostles is the word of people who are being sent out. That your life is to be a blessing for others. Do you remember what I read in the beginning from the young man who took his own life. He said, people struggle with being selfless. That we are all about self. We are all about the great I am. And when you are feeling the pressures of life, and when you ignore the pressures of life that other people are facing, we are putting people at risk. When you put your own needs continually ahead of others, you are putting people's lives at risk. Jesus is very clear in this passage that he wants your life to be for others. As a true follower of, of his, that is what we are called to do. There is so much more here that we can talk about this morning. But what I want you to know is that part of or the core of what I was sharing this morning really is found in our vision here at the gathering, and what our church is to be about. And that is this, is that we are to do life in Christ. That above all else, we are people who are in Christ. We find our hope, our identity, our purpose in Christ. That at the very core of who you are, Christ is at the center. And we do it together. And we stumble along the way. We struggle. We understand there's enough humility to know that we all have struggles. We all have aches and we all have pains and we share those compassionately together. But the third, that we have a purpose, that you open your heart to others. I listened to one sermon this week on this passage and the man said this, that this passage at its core is that when you follow Christ and you open your heart to loving other people, you will open your heart to discouragement you will open your heart to sadness. You will open your heart to busyness. And that's what it means to be a Christian. The moment you open your heart to loving someone besides yourself, you are putting yourself at risk for hurt and pain. But that's what a true community is. Followers of Christ living in Him, doing it together for others. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, I pray that this passage would speak to us, that our hearts would be open, that you would soften our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through these words.
Father, we benefit from studying Your Word, knowing that Your Son faced immense pressures the same way we do. Father, that gives us understanding that we're not alone, we're not the only ones here with pressures, that everyone here this morning has something that's causing pressure or stress in their life. I pray that we would slow down, not be in a rush to go to the next thing, we would open our hearts to doing all of life with you. Father, help us to slow down, be grateful for what we have, show our love towards one another, be people who bring healing to each other. Not pointing out mistakes, but compassion and healing. We love you in the name of Jesus. Amen.